0: And so we come to the large center section of the book, where Jesus leads his newly formed Israel on a journey to Jerusalem. This part of the book consists mainly of Jesus' teaching and parables given on the road to the various people he encounters, mainly his growing group of disciples. And in this way, Luke portrays following Jesus as a journey. It's something you do where you learn as you go along life's path. So first, Jesus invites his disciples into his mission as he sends a wave of them to go ahead of him announcing God's kingdom. So being a disciple right from the start, it means participating in Jesus' kingdom mission, making it your own. And as Jesus' disciples come back, he then starts to give various teachings about prayer, about trusting in God's provision. It's actually in these chapters of Luke that Jesus talks more about money, possessions, and generosity than anywhere else in his teachings. If following him is truly like being on the road, it should produce this minimalist mentality, creating a freedom from possessions that allows for radical generosity. Another key theme in these chapters is Jesus' continued mission to the poor. So as he travels, he keeps forming his new Israel, and he encounters all these people who are sick or blind. He meets Samaritans, who are ancient enemies of the Jewish people. And famously, Zacchaeus, a Jewish man, but who heads up tax collection for the Romans. All of these social outsiders meet Jesus, and they're transformed by the encounter. And so they join his kingdom community, which Jesus describes as a great banquet party he is here to seek and save the lost and so he's celebrating when people discover the mercy of God
1: would you pray with me heavenly father pour out your holy spirit on me and on all of us gathered here lord take my words and make them yours take all of our thoughts and make them yours And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning I'm reading from Luke's Gospel in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. So the the story of Zacchaeus is a story about God's prevenient grace. So John Wesley taught sort of what he called the threefold grace of God, that God's grace works in our lives in in three distinct ways. Ways, and He wasn't the first one to come up with that idea. He's just sort of the most recent one to articulate it and one of the more influential ones to, to teach it. But he, he saw that God's grace works in our, in our lives to sanctify us. So This is sanctifying grace. It's what makes us holy. This is how God works to, to uh, shape those of us who are Christians into more and more Christ-like people. Right? It's, it's the grace of God working in our hearts to make us a more perfect image of God in the world. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Then God's grace, uh, before it can sanctify us, it has to justify us. So God has justifying grace that, that is poured into us in that moment when we repent of our sins and accept Christ as our Savior. This is the grace of God that puts us in right standing before God and wipes away the sins of our past. So that's God's justifying grace. But God also has prevenient grace, the grace that goes before the grace of God that is reaching out to people even before they know who God is, even before they've uh, expressed any sort of desire to be forgiven of their sins. This is God's grace that reaches out to seek and save the lost. This is why, by the way, we baptize infants, because we believe that even though they are not obviously mentally able to, to choose God or to accept the Christian faith or even understand what's going on, God's grace can still be poured out into them. God's prevenient grace is the grace which calls to all people at all times, calling them home to God. So Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and tax collectors are just the the lowest of the low, and I don't think I have to explain why. Um, (laughs) My apologies if you're here and you work for the IRS. Jesus loves you. (laughs) Says in the story. Uh, (laughs) Right? Nobody likes the tax collectors, right? We all, we all understand that. But, but the, the sentiment that people in, in Jesus' day and age, and particularly that Jewish people had towards tax collectors, is not at all what we might feel, right? We might be, like, annoyed by the IRS taking our money, uh, right? We might be bothered by the bureaucracy if we had to deal with them, and those things, right, we get frustrated. Um, but what, what the Jewish people in Jesus' time felt towards tax collectors was outright Hatred. I mean, deep-seated hatred. Because, of course, the tax collectors are Jewish men who are collecting money for the Romans. They're, they're working for the oppressors who are, who are beating down the Jewish people. And not only that, but because they're the ones collecting the taxes, they are the very instrument of the most common oppression that the Jewish people feel in their daily lives. I mean, these are the ultimate traitors to their people. They're taking your money and giving it to the bad guys. And because there's so much animosity towards them, most of those tax collectors go around every day guarded by Roman soldiers. So as they're taking your money, standing right next to them is a visible symbol of this evil empire that is oppressing your people. And not just that, but a a pretty blatant reminder that if you try and and resist what this tax collector is doing, they're prepared to use lethal force on you, and here's the guy who's going to do it. Everything about them engenders this hatred and resentment, and then on top of that, they're, they're sort of notorious for being corrupt. I mean, they're the only ones who keep the ledger of who owes how much and when. And no one's looking over their shoulder to make sure they get it right. So if they want to fudge the numbers and take more than they're supposed to take so that they can get wealthy off your misfortune, who's going to stop them? It's not going to be you, because if you argue with them, the soldier's going to take you away. And the Roman government doesn't really have any real interest in, in rooting out the corruption amongst their tax collectors as long as Rome gets their cut. They don't care. So the tax collectors are not just collaborating with the Roman people, with the Roman government, with the Roman army. They're also, uh, I mean, they're getting rich because of it. They are benefiting directly from the misfortune and the oppression of their own people. So people don't like them. And, and Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. And, and Jericho is this major economic hub that sits right on the middle of multiple really important trade routes. So right, they're not just collecting the taxes from the people who live there. They're collecting a toll from all the traders who are coming through the city. Right. When it says that Zacchaeus is wealthy, he is probably in the top 1% of people in the world in his day and age, in terms of how much wealth he has likely accumulated. And not all of it has been through honest means. He is the wrong kind of person, and on top of all that, he's really short, (laughs) right? If you grew up in church going to children's Sunday school, you heard the song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. That song's so mean, right? (laughs) He is the wrong kind of person. Jesus has no business even talking to this guy. Right? This is not the same thing as when he goes to like, the prostitutes who had no other choice and like, they're forced into this life because it's the only way they could survive. It's not like the lepers who have a condition that they couldn't control and so they're impure and they're not part of, able to go in the temple. Right? This is very different. He is going to someone who has intentionally chosen a lifestyle, a way of making money, a way of caring for themselves that is unquestionably evil. Evil. not just because they're collecting taxes, but because he's cheating people as he does it. He's chosen to collaborate with the enemy. And Jesus seeks him out. And do you notice, Zacchaeus doesn't repent before Jesus goes to his house. It's it's not like, Zacchaeus repented of his sins, gave all his money away, and then Jesus said, by the way, I'm coming to your house. No, 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 Jesus does that first. God's grace goes first. It's only after that happens that, G- that Zacchaeus decides to give away half his possessions and return the money he's stolen from people. Jesus doesn't make him do that before he comes to him. He is the wrong kind of person. And I'm telling you, we should be praying, and I mean desperately praying, for the wrong kind of people to come to our church. We should be praying that God leads all the wrong kinds of people to our doors. And when he does, we should stand ready to welcome them and to be the grace of God in the flesh for those people. Good job, guys. That was great. (coughs) Maybe more than that, we ought to be praying for the Holy Spirit to lead us to those folks in our daily lives so that we're not just waiting for them to show up at our doorstep but that we are actively carrying the grace of God out with us into the community. Right? Jesus didn't come to wait for the lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. The worst thing a church can do is to make the wrong kinds of people feel unwelcome. And and churches don't do that on purpose, by the way, right? There's not very many churches that actively decide that here's the categories of people we're not going to welcome into our doors. I mean, some churches do. But most churches actually don't. Most churches will tell themselves and will genuinely believe, at least on some level, that anyone and everyone is welcome in their doors. And unfortunately, the reality is it's not true not because of anything that they've consciously done, but because it's just so easy for a church to turn its gaze inward and to focus on nothing but what will make us happy and what will make us comfortable and what do we want to do for ourselves. And it's not that those are bad things. You should be happy in your church. You should feel comfortable in your worship service. You should be doing things at your church that that you like to do. That's all good. But when that becomes all we focus on, We're in deep trouble. Because the thing is, the church, our church, does not exist for us. It exists for everyone else. The church is an outpost of God's kingdom in the midst of the world. That's what it's here for. It is supposed to be the kind of place where where sinners in need of grace can flee for refuge. Where people in need of healing, can come and be healed. If it isn't those things, then there's no reason for it to exist. If the church becomes nothing more than a social club we go to on Sunday mornings, there is no reason for it to be here. You can get that somewhere else. Plain and simple. And one of the reason why... It feels at times like churches are closing their doors right and left. It's because so many of our churches have ceased to exist for anyone outside their walls. You know, they tell you when you're starting out in ministry that that a church is either growing or it's dying. There is no in-between. A church cannot plateau. It can only grow or die. Now, the death may be a slow death because it may not be that people are leaving your doors, but they're still dying off. The church cannot be stable. It's growing or it's dying. And there is no middle ground. So once you turn your gaze inward and begin to focus only on the people who are already here, that's the beginning of the end. If, if we are not consciously extending God's grace out into the world, the church will die, and think of the impact it has. Like, look at Zacchaeus. Jesus tells him, "Salvations come to this house today, right? Because this man too is a son of Abraham." But, but notice that it doesn't just come to Zacchaeus, right? He's going to give away half his possessions to the poor and anything he's cheated anybody out of, he's going to return fourfold. Do you realize what that means? If this man is as wealthy as as he probably is, as a chief tax collector in a really wealthy city, with all the money he has, if he's giving away half his possessions to the poor, every poor person in that city is going to eat for a year or more. His repentance doesn't just save him. It saves everybody in need of God's grace in that city that one act of God's grace changed the lives of thousands. That is the power of God's grace reaching out into the world. Now here's the good news. We're halfway there. See, there's, there's sort of two components to, to taking this, this job of extending God's grace beyond our walls. and Most churches are only really focused on one or the other, but... but you have to have both, right? So, so we already do half this really well, right? We have things like the food pantry. We have, uh, right, like we have groups that go to Church Without Walls. Two Sundays out of every month, there's a group from Asbury at Church Without Walls. We have things that we just started doing, like Thanksgiving for 1,000, where we fed actually over 2,000 people for Thanksgiving. So we've got, we've got this component where we're meeting people's physical needs and we're doing things that actually feed the hungry and, and help those in need, and that's wonderful, It's half the equation. It's a good half. And we should celebrate it. The other half is the spiritual component. That we actually have to pray for people. Maybe even people you don't know. Maybe even complete and total strangers. Maybe people you, not even people you've walked by on the street, but just a general prayer that those in our community who are in need of God's grace would receive it. Because see, people absolutely need their physical needs met. But sometimes what they need is for God's grace to reach out to them and change their hearts. And often God reaches different kinds of people through those different ministries. And, and what happens is this when you actually do both things, the effect is not like you've doubled up on the people you reach. It's not like you doubled up the the effective ministry of your church. It increases exponentially. What if we were a people who actually prayed for those around us to receive the grace of God? See, when we start doing that habitually, there's two things that happen. The first is that sometimes God's grace just acts directly on a person with no human intervention at all. Sometimes sometimes his prevenient grace reaches a person and touches them, and they begin to experience God calling them into some kind of community. These are the stories you hear of, of people whose lives are just completely falling apart, and one day, for reasons they can't quite explain, they walked into a church and everything changed from that point on. I would bet that in almost every one of those stories, there was someone in that church praying for God's grace to reach out to the people around them. But the other thing that happens is this. As we start to pray for people, and and not just like people we know, but just a generalized prayer, Lord, would you pour your spirit out on this community? What begins to happen is that God actually begins to change us. And we begin to notice that he's leading us in certain directions, and, and, and we have more and more experiences where we feel like God is telling us to speak to this person or to pray for this person we've just passed on the street. A couple of weeks ago, we were out uh, at dinner with some friends of ours from college who still live in the area, and, and like we're at our table, and it's two couples, and there's three children, so we're like already allowed loud and crazy, very messy table, and there's like food everywhere on the floor, and you know the waitress comes up, and you know my our, our, my friend before she takes her order, my friend asks this this waitress, you know, is there anything we can we can pray for with you? Do you have anything you need us to pray for? And then he just like prays with the waitress right then and there. Now, I will tell you, uh, I thought it was weird. Right? <laughs> right? It's an awkward moment. He's praying for a stranger. This is kind of strange. Can we just order our food? I'm very hungry. Um, this is an odd moment. But you know, as, I, as I thought about it more and more, I, I started to think, Man, what, how great would it be, actually, if more of us did things just like that? Because in a way, that's exactly what we're called to do. When he didn't know this person, and frankly, he has no idea what effect his prayer had on her life. He might never see her again. And that's the way it works sometimes. You, you won't always know the full impact of your prayers for other people. But that's not the point. The point is to extend God's grace, to take the grace that we receive here in our church and take it out into the world to live as if we are an outpost of God's kingdom in the midst of a foreign land. You may never know the effect that your prayers have on others. But what a different place the world might be if more of us were willing to just pray for a complete and total stranger before we got our meal. Now, I haven't done that yet since um, because it's still weird, isn't it? Uh, we're not comfortable doing this kind of stuff. I get it. But I'm willing to bet that that waitress that night, as awkward as she must have felt at that point, right, telling him what she needed prayer for, I'm willing to bet at the very least she left somewhat touched by the experience. He was a complete stranger who was willing to sit and pray with her for something she needed just out of the goodness of his heart. Isn't that exactly the kind of person we're supposed to be? We've got, we're, we're not good at praying for people. I mean, we're good at praying for people we know, if we have it written down, right? And if we have a reminder on our phone to remind us to pray for them, right? You know, all the stuff. But, but the thing is, as Christians, prayer is our vocation, It's not just something we do when we think about it. It's not just a nice thing to do on Sunday mornings. It is literally our calling as God's people. Every last one of us is called to a life of prayer. And while it's always, of course, good to pray for ourselves and to pray for our church, a major part of that calling is to pray for the rest of the world to understand that that kind of prayer actually does have an effect. It isn't just like a trite saying, like, oh, we're sending our thoughts and prayers and then you don't do anything about it. No, actually praying for the rest of the world makes a difference. So we have two weeks before Easter. And I wonder what would happen if every day between now and Easter Sunday, our entire church was praying daily for God's grace to be poured out on the people around us who need it. And I'm not saying like pray that they would all show up on Easter Sunday here. I mean, if you want to do that, you know, go ahead. I won't, I won't complain. But I'm, I'm just talking about praying. If we're going to celebrate in two weeks the, the resurrection of our Lord and the, the day in history when our God conquered sin and death, wouldn't it be good in the weeks leading up to that to spend some time praying that other people who desperately need to hear that message would hear it, would experience it, and would know in their hearts what Jesus has done for them. And wouldn't it be great if we could see God doing that, if if God would bring the wrong kinds of people to our church, and we could see what God is doing. Now I know that me asking you to do that is great, but I also know that most people are forgetful and won't do it. Um, Or you just won't know what to say. So I've taken the liberty of giving these little cards out. Uh, If you didn't grab it on your way in, there's like a big stack of them on this chair out there. This is a very short, simple prayer. And I would encourage us all if we just pray it just once every day between now and Easter. I mean, you can keep doing it after Easter if you want. Also, there's no reason you have to stop. But I'm just saying between now and Easter, what if we all did it every day? I wonder what a difference that might make. And we may never see the full impact. But it wouldn't surprise me if the entire church is praying this prayer every day for the next two weeks, if there are people in our worship service on Easter Sunday who will tell us things like, I don't know why, but we just decided to come here, or who will just show up out of the blue and experience the power and the presence of God. We already do a lot of wonderful things incredible outreach in our community and i am willing to bet if we make a habit of adding a prayer component to that as well as just the practical handing out of food and, and and i'm willing to bet that we will start to see some incredible things happening so i'm going to close my sermon by praying this prayer you don't have to sit out loud with me i'm just going to pray but let's pray Almighty God, our Savior. You desire that none should perish, and you have taught us through your Son that there is great joy in heaven over every sinner who repents. Grant that our hearts may ache for a lost and broken world. May your Holy Spirit work through our words, deeds, and prayers that the lost may be found and the dead made alive and that all your redeemed may rejoice around your throne. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.